Hi, and welcome to Bread. We are an open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church, and we are in a new series called If Jesus is Supreme. In a world of half-truths, split opinions, and divergent beliefs, Paul's letter to the Colossians makes a surprisingly concrete claim. Jesus is supreme. He is the ruler of the universe, the authority in all of life. And when we fully lay hold of this fact, every area of our life is affected. So this is a series about the process of maturing. It's for everyone who knows there is more. Amen. Amen. Would you like to take a seat? Um, It is my pleasure to um, introduce Alice. So for those of you who don't know, we, um, in 2016, I think someone's breaking all of the things, uh, but that's fine. Um, uh, We left London to plant a church here, and I got to know Alice. She was a student at um, the church, and then she came uh, to uh, work a little bit for the church for like a short time, and then was working in some sort of dead-end insurance job or something. Uh, and um, we'd just been on a weekend away, and we hadn't really told anyone that we felt like God was telling us to go to um, Los Angeles, but we, uh, I kind of felt quite strongly that this is going to happen. And I was just having a drink with Alice and some, a couple of other people after this weekend, and I just said, uh, Alice, do you want to come to Los Angeles to plant a church with us? I hadn't actually asked Hannah or anyone else, uh, and we didn't have any money. Uh, but, you know, uh, the Spirit was doing it. So um, I asked her, and she said yes, uh, because uh, she's like that. She's full of faith. And uh, she's always shown faith. Whatever she's done, she has just operated by faith. And it's got her into some terrible scrapes and some wonderful excitement. Uh, she was to- The reason you're here, the reason this church exists, is in large part down to Alice, because she looked after Hannah and me when we were having mental breakdowns. Uh, She did kids, she did set up church, she spoke, she pastored people, she prophesied, she did everything. Um, To be honest, we didn't really need me and Hannah. Uh, She's she's been wonderful. So um, she's now selfishly gone back. Uh, She stopped operating by faith and uh, has now gone back to England um, to train to be a church leader. Uh, England's gain is our loss, but it's wonderful to have you back, Alice. Um, Thank you. So this is Alice. She's British. Don't hold that against her. Ed knows I'm words of of affirmation, so just give me a couple of minutes before I chill out, because I could be crying right now. Um, So... I thought I would start by just telling you a little story about the kinds of things we got up to when we first got to LA. Um, so we, I think we've probably been in LA for maybe a couple of months. And for whatever reason, Ed and I, and our current worship leader at the time, went to Malibu together to collect a sideboard. That was the kinds of things we were doing with our job. And so we meandered our way through the kind of like back streets of Malibu, which maybe isn't the word for them, but yeah, the like through the valleys and whatever. And we got to this man's house, and this man was very weird. Very, very weird. When I mean, what I mean by weird is in a very large house alone, but also just, I don't know, something about him just felt like, ooh, should we be here? <laughs> 
And then Ed got out of the car, introduced himself. We walk behind Ed, and he just goes, oh, um, uh, these are my um, friends. And I'm looking at Ed being like, is this the point where we promise we're not in a cult? Like, we could just be colleagues. I mean, we are friends, but... So those are the kinds of things we were doing right at the beginning. So in the, in the words of Drake, we started from the bottom. Now you're here. And for those of you who haven't been here, um, I know that you guys are currently in a series exploring the book of Colossians. And as I've kind of been reading through this book with you guys and listening to the talks, I've been struck again by the blueprint that Paul sets out for us to become mature. Now, maturity for us, in the way that it's kind of talked about in our societal understanding, is thought to kind of go hand in hand with age. As we get older, we gain maturity because we have more and more experiences of life. But when we think about biblical maturity, this is actually really misleading. Of course, we hope that the longer someone is a Christian, the more maturity they gain, the more experiences they have of Jesus, and therefore the more like Jesus they become. But that doesn't always happen, does it? I can think of some people that I know being Christians for many, many years, and they're pretty spiritually immature. There's stuff there that needs to be processed. Equally, I can think of people who've been Christians for about five minutes who are like well up for it. They're really... Um, excited to kind of be in the journey of maturity, which is quite confronting for me half the time because actually it's a challenge to see other people desire maturity in a way that maybe I haven't. So why does this happen? Well, I know Hannah already spoke about some of this at the weekend away through Ephesians 4, and Paul mirrors many of the same hallmarks of maturity in our reading today, which is in Colossians 3. So this is from verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And what's so clear throughout Colossians, this passage being one of them, is that sometimes God's work can feel a little bit like an attack on our ego. And not in a humiliating way, and not in a way that kind of um, belittles our sense of self, but as we come into line with God's spirit, our interests are redirected. You know, all, Christ all non-Christian methods of self self-improvement and maturity focus on us, on what we can do in our own strength. We can think differently, behave differently, feel differently, process our emotions correctly, whereas spiritual maturity is focused entirely on the person of Jesus. All we have to do is believe in him, worship him, 
and receive him. Or as Paul says here, we have to put him on. The heart of Paul's ethics is that we must take off our old self, our self-related, do it in our own strength and for our own purposes self, and put on this new self that has been won for us by the completed work of Jesus. We are new creations, fully free to be who we really are, adopted into his family. And instead of looking inwards on ourselves, we are called to look out into the world. How can I bring the kingdom out there? And all that sounds very nice, doesn't it? But how? How do we actually do this putting on of our new self? Well, I think Paul reveals a few things that are really key for us in Colossians 3. One, our new self is not an individualistic one. It's a corporate one. This stuff is about us doing our Christian life together. We do this in community. Two, because we are created to be dependent on God and interdependent with one another, we have to get good at submission. Submission to Christ and submission to one another. And finally, three, of course, none of this is possible without receiving the power of the Spirit and going on and on and on to continue to receive the power of the Spirit. So that's kind of the general direction I'm going in this morning. But I want to focus particularly on submission. I now know that you're extra pumped to have me back. From the outset, I think it's really important that I tell you what submission isn't. Submission isn't denying your pain and hurt in favor of someone else's, else's emotions. Submission isn't agreeing with leaders just because they're your leaders. Submission isn't staying in an abusive marriage or continuing to try your best to have a relationship with parents who aren't very kind or reject you. Submission isn't doing the cleaning and the housework because you're a woman. And submission isn't making sure you just check with your husband because apparently I don't have a head. In simple terms, submission says things like, I'm going to try and get along even with people I don't always like very much. I'm not going to insist that I'm right. Submission says things like, even when I do get what I want, I'm not going to lord it over you. And if I don't get what I want, and then I'm proved right, I'm not going to point at you and say, I told you so. I told you I was right. Submission is choosing, us choosing, to align ourselves and our lives for the good of others. But what we have to understand from the start is that submission only works in a context where mutual submission is happening. So if I'm submitted to you, and I spend my time, you know, I support you, I love you, I choose to, um, you know, encourage you, kind of amplify your sense of calling, your sense of worth, and then you run with that and squeeze me for all I'm worth, that's control. That's exploitation. But if, in response to my willingness to love you, to care for you, to be kind to you, you too love me out of a place of servitude, that's the gold dust of the kingdom. This is mutual submission, all of us doing it all of the time. But that's not what often people have experienced in church, right? I'm sure many of us have stories of the church doing a pretty bad job of this submission thing. <laughs> and it's caused particularly women and people of color a lot of pain. 
And the verses in Colossians 3 that come directly after the ones I've already read this morning are kind of the, some of the main culprits used to support this misunderstanding of submission. So as I was writing this talk, I was praying and asking God, like, please can you help me understand what this really means? This is really hard. This is really challenging for me. I want to get an understanding of what you're talking about here. And I felt him say in that moment, think about my submission first. And so we are going to read those verses in Colossians 3 a bit later. But I want to start by building a solid foundation on the submission of Jesus. So here are some observations about Jesus' life in the Gospel of John. This is John 5.19. Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing of himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. John 5.30. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but, the, but him who sent me. And finally, John 12, 49 to 50. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Now, when Jesus says, I can do nothing, by myself, I can do nothing, the more accurate translation would actually be something like, the Son has chosen to do nothing of himself. He has chosen to submit to the will and work of his Father in heaven, who he knows loves him. And this is how he makes all of his decisions. Why did Jesus heal people? Because it's what the Father was doing. Why did he raise people from the dead? It's what he saw his Father doing. What did he say? What, why did he say what he said when he said it? It's because he was listening to the voice of the Father. It was what the voice of the Father was saying. So if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to learn to have a loving and submitted relationship to our Father in heaven. But there's a dilemma. Because unlike Jesus, we don't, we aren't perfectly connected with our Father in heaven, and we don't perfectly receive his love, do we? And that means we aren't always convinced that what the Father is doing is best. And we're not always convinced that he's good or that he's kind. Our view of God is influenced by our experiences of parents, our experiences of influential authorities, our experiences of church leaders. And these can be really damaging. They can cause trauma for us. For example, I once read of a South, Korean's woman, a South Korean woman's experience of prayer. She was talking about how because of her experience of her culture, but then on top of that, because of her experience of her father, she had kind of always believed that you must come to any authority with absolute reverence, like get on your knees, be afraid. And so if you can imagine that then being developed or magnified as she learned about God, she was like, oh my gosh, I need to like come to God. I need to get on my knees. I need to beg him. I need to beg him to forgive me. I need to beg him to show me his love because I need to be in fearful rever reverence of him. And as she was doing that one day, she had this picture come into her mind's eye. And it was of her doing exactly what she was doing. So she was down on her knees begging God for forgiveness. And she, she felt a tap on her shoulder. 
And as she turned round, this is in the kind of, in her imagination, in her picture, she turned round and she saw that it was God. And God said to her, you can look me in the eye. And this is the love of our Father. Our Father in heaven is not angry. He's not like a cosmic traffic cop trying to like work out when we've done something wrong. He's not absent. He longs to be with you, to hold your face in his hands and look into your eyes. And it's when we experience this love for ourselves over and over and over and over again, when we open ourselves to his love over and over again, that we will not be able to help but say, your will be done. I'll go your way. I don't have to go mine. Because as Jesus says, we will know that his words lead to eternal life. And so we'll be up for following it because we've experienced him. So submission is always a response to love. But of course, Jesus' submission doesn't stop there. In Philippians 2, it says this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Surely it would have made more sense for him to like come as a king, come as some person of great stature, come as a political overthrower. That's what the Jews were expecting, right? But this isn't the way with Jesus. Jesus, the sovereign Lord, the creator of the universe, the spotless lamb, worthy of all of our praise and worship, reveals himself as a servant, submits himself to the will of the Father, and he chooses, in his love for us, public humiliation and death for you. In all of our dirt and mess, in all of our uncertainty and doubt, in all of our desire for control, Jesus, the sinless one, chooses to give his life so that we can experience the love of our Father in heaven intimately. We can experience forgiveness. We can experience freedom. So one, Jesus is perfectly submitted to the will and work of his Father. And two, Jesus, in his perfect submission to the Father, lays down his life for you and for me. And so what does that mean for us? Well, in that verse from Philippians, it starts by saying, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Or in Ephesians 5.21, it also says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I don't know about you, but Jesus being Jesus and doing very Jesus-y things like, I don't know, new grace every morning, forgiving me, loving me, peace that surpasses all understanding, all of those stuff. I'm like, yeah, I'm well up for that. (laughs) I'll take that. It's free. Um, But then being called to have the same mindset as him, to behave like him, to become like him, that makes me a bit squiffy in my tummy. I don't think I can do that. Can you do that? If you can, call me. Um, but while I was like grappling with that thought this week, like, oh gosh, this is actually like quite confrontational, I was reminded of a birthday party we went to of a friend. It was her 50th. 
um, a few weeks ago. And our friend Anne currently runs the food bank at our church in London. But before that, she worked with Jackie Pullinger for 19 years in Hong Kong. And if you haven't heard of Jackie Pullinger, she wrote an amazing book. You should read it. She does wild things. Um, but at the age of 22, she got on a boat with 10 pounds in her pocket, and she said, God, tell me when to get off this boat. She got to Hong Kong, and she was like, the Lord is telling me to get off, and I don't have a plan, but I do have 10 British pounds. <laughs> and she ended up starting a ministry where she basically would pray for heroin addicts on the street and see them miraculously healed of addiction through the power of prayer. And so she's been doing that for decades now, and she has a whole ministry set up, and she has become, or the ministry has become so successful, as in people stopping being addicts via the power of prayer, that the Chinese government now sponsors them to do what they do. Extraordinary story. So do read it. Her book, guys. Anyway, Anne lived doing this in the walled city in Hong Kong. And particularly, she lived with 15 to 20 teenage girls that were either coming off of heroin out of the sex industry, like sex slave industry, or both. And so she, her job was to love them, care for them, mother them, pray for them to, for their side effects of addiction to stop, and of course pray for the extraordinary trauma that they had gone through. She parented 15 teenage girls for 19 years. Absolute hero. So you can imagine at her birthday there were a gajillion stories of Anne doing extraordinary things and being extraordinarily loving. But one in particular really stood out to me. This guy got up and said that as she was walking home one day, she had met a man suffering with addiction. And she had kind of sat with him and talked with him. And he couldn't really walk, and he had lesions like um, really bad, yeah, really bad kind of wounds all over his body from the unclean needles. And he had such slurred speech, she couldn't really understand him. But the one thing she did catch was his name. And when she was walking away that night, she felt Jesus say, just remember his name. And so she was like, okay, I can, I can do that. And every couple of days, she felt like she remembered his name in, his head, in her head. And she felt Jesus say, go and find him. So whatever she was doing, she would get out on the streets and she would call his name. And she would meander her way through the back streets of Hong Kong. She would go through drug dens and brothels to find him. And when she found him, she would get on her knees and hold him, embrace him, love him. And then she would take with her things to basically tend to his wounds. So she would, one by one, wrap, wrap his wounds. And she did that for almost an entire year before he decided he might want to get sober. How much time did she spend looking for that guy? How much time did she spend wrapping his wounds? He's now a Christian and helps lead the, the um, ministry. And I was thinking about this story for days. I just honestly was like, how did she find the time? How did she have that much love? And how, in the middle of basically parenting 15 teenagers, which I have no idea what that's like, was she able to be so submitted to the voice of Jesus in her life that she's like, 
all right, I'll go and find that guy in the middle of my day. And when I asked Anne, I like went up to her a few days later and was like, Anne, I've got a question to ask you. Um, how did you do that thing? <laughs> um, and she just kind of laughed. She's Canadian. She's very sweet. But she kind of laughed and she went, oh, Al, I was crying on the carpet for years. As in, she got so much ministry, she was crying for such a long time. She received so much love from her Father in heaven that she just trusted him when he spoke. Anne allowed the Spirit to meet her so powerfully again and again and again that she actually had immeasurably more to give away. And I don't know about you, but I very rarely feel like I have immeasurably more. But that's what she had, because it's all about him. She allowed him to do what he does. Okay, so hopefully, with our somewhat redeemed submission glasses on, let's look at Colossians 3, 18, 2, 4, 1. Wives, submit, submit yourselves to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it, not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving, Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Okay, if I'm honest, my immediate feeling, this is spicy. This is hot stuff. Even after sitting with it all week, I have to train my brain away from bad theology. So if you're feeling that, if you're like, oh, she could say, can I encourage you? Take a big, deep breath. I promise you, it is so much more freedom-bringing and more badass than you think it is. So buckle up. Something to note is, I don't have loads of time. So this might feel like I'm just like rushing over it. So I am sorry if it feels like that, but I'm going to do the best that I can. In Paul's first century context, what we have here are three relationships with a power imbalance. And so Paul's major concern is how these relationships should now be lived out in light of the fact that all of us are living under the entire, entirely balanced force and sole authority, namely King Jesus. Another couple of things to remember. Firstly, just a few verses ago in Colossians 3.11, Paul said, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. The kingdom obliterates all barriers, racial, gender, socioeconomic. Of course, this isn't an exhaustive list, but you get the point. And secondly, remember our framing verse from Ephesians 5 that I briefly mentioned earlier. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Mutual submission. So in light of all of that, let's start with wives and husbands. Paul is saying... In the context of the mutual submission that you have already been called to, let me just give you some extra advice. Wives, 
try not to resent your husbands, even though you're experiencing a power imbalance. In the midst of the injustice, choose self-giving love. Of course, because of the power imbalance, this is a huge risk. But there's risk at the heart of every meaningful relationship, right? The risk is that there's no guarantee that the other party will love us or submit to us in the same way. But Paul continues, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So while both parties are called to mutual submission, only the husbands get a double command. Submit and to love. And this is mind-blowing for the ancient world. Paul is saying, husbands, give up the power that you have. And as Christ loved the church, i.e. dying for her, love your wife selflessly and sacrificially. Okay, next, slaves and masters. I think this is probably the most tricky on the first read. And it's important for us to understand that just because Paul doesn't directly push for the abolition of slavery here, it doesn't mean that he doesn't believe that slavery should be abolished. Remember, he's just said only a few verses before, there is neither slave nor free in the kingdom. So he's already established this has no place in the kingdom of God. Paul has no room for power over. He has no room for humans owning or brutalizing other humans. It doesn't happen in scripture, as in he doesn't agree with it. But in this instance, Paul is being pragmatic and he's choosing to disrobe the institutional power from within. Slaves, instead of working for your masters, work for the Lord. Because unlike, unlike human sisters of, systems of power, Jesus will always be faithful and true. He will always be fair and just. He will always be loving and kind. And he can set you free. But it's actually in the following statement where Paul gets all revolutionary again. Masters, abdicate your power. You can no longer treat your slaves as property. They are brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God. And I know this makes us feel... It feels difficult, right? These verses make us feel emotions. But I hope you're seeing a theme here. In every instance, Paul takes down the power imbalance, punches through the ancient system, and replaces it with mutual submission, equality. This is scandalous for the ancient world. Lastly, children and fathers. By addressing children as members of the community in their own right, Paul is breaking new ground again. Children, instead of you needing to be quiet, not be seen, being ignored, you have a place here. Your voice means something to God. He then goes on to say, just as children need discipline, so do parents. Again, Paul only directs any of this to fathers because they have more of the power in the unbalanced relationship in the context of the ancient world. But in our context, it would be completely legitimate for us to read this as mothers as well. What Paul calls parents to do is not embitter their children. And the meaning in behind here is don't provoke them, don't belittle them, don't you know, put them down. Because you aren't just belittling the child, but you're belittling the image of God in them. 
Instead, the role of parents, in very simple terms, noting that I have never parented, um, is to live out the gospel for your children. Love them and value them. Not for who they should have been, not for who they could have been if they tried harder, but for who they are. So that's your whistle-stop tour of it. doesn't actually say that in Colossians 3. So what does all this submission stuff mean for our church family? I um, remember when I first came to church before I was a Christian, and I'd been invited to church by um, my friend from uni. And I kind of just felt like I've got nothing to lose, so I might as well go and see what all of these people do on a Sunday. Anyway, I was trying to save money at the time, so after this church service, I decided I'm going to walk home, which from Marlebone to Laverick Grove, if you don't know, is over an hour. And for the entire journey home, I was blubbering my eyes out. And I'd found the service pretty overwhelming, both in kind of unexpected, quite good, but also Christians are weird kind of way. And my experience of Christians up until that point had either been really judgy and gross or like stick pins in my eyes, so boring. And so while I was walking home and I was like blubbery, snotty crying, I was thinking of my friend Morena and all of her church friends. And I just had this, this thing within me, something that I couldn't put my finger on. I just felt this deep, deep sense of loneliness because I was thinking of the way that she engaged with her friends. She had something that I didn't have. The way that they engaged with each other, the way that they loved each other, the way that they built something together, the way that they knew each other and forgave one another. I just didn't get it. And I couldn't quite grasp what they had that I didn't have. But that made me feel this like stomach-wrenching, I'm alone. I'm completely on my own. And of course, now I know that it was Jesus, and it was love, and it was submission, and it was unity, and it was the glory of the kingdom hitting my soul and revealing what I really felt on the inside, which was completely lost at sea. And that's the mystery of what he does to us as a church family. As we choose to be under the rule and reign of Jesus, as we corporately like put on our new selves, as we submit to one another, serve one another, partner with one another, people will actually just know we're aligned with him, just in their souls. And people like me won't be able to help but come back both into our family I, I was drawn into and also obviously into the arms of Jesus. And I think there are lots and lots of people in LA who need that. To be drawn into the family that they were really created for. So let me end with this. Pretty much everyone in today's world wants autonomy. They want to self-rule, right? They want to be strong, they want to be independent, they want to be emotionally intelligent, they want all the stuff. And let's be honest with ourselves, we're attracted to that, I'm attracted to that, I want that too. And while many of our attempts at personal growth aren't necessarily bad things in and of themselves, when we ultimately choose autonomy 
over being under the lordship of Jesus. It actually really hurts us. And this is why this concept of submission can feel offensive to us, minus also all of our other bad experiences of actual submission being talked about in a negative way. But submission can feel offensive to us, especially for those of us who think they do a pretty good job of controlling everything on their own, thank you very much. I'm one of them. If you know me, you'll know it's true. But the truth is, when we're the ultimate authority, instead of finding freedom, we so often just become slaves to fear or anxiety or the opinion of others or our desire for power, control, influence, authority, success, money. The reality is autonomy is just another form of submission. But instead of bringing us safety and freedom and life in all of its fullness, it exhausts us but we know who the antidote is. Jesus, in a totally countercultural way, sacrificed his own life and won the victory over every instance of darkness in all of its forms so that we can choose to place ourselves under his rule and reign and in him find constant, overflowing, never-ending peace rest and love and it says that in verse 15 so instead of autonomy can I encourage you this morning let's each one of us choose the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts let's be filled with living water let's be, come back to him let's be filled with the spirit without measure because it's only him who can set us free, and it's only him who can empower us to become the mature, unified, mutually submitted kingdom of God that we were created to be. So if you feel comfortable, why don't you stand?